All right, I hope you have your Bibles in front of you. Turn to Romans chapter 3. As I have previously stated, uh, what we call the book of Romans is Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And in this church, it included both Jews and Gentiles. A majority of them, though, were Gentile. That being said, there are sections in this book that are speaking directly to the Jews. As a matter of fact, chapter 2, which we just finished recently, would be one of those sections. And the reason that Paul uh, has written to them specifically in this section is because they had a false sense of spiritual security. They felt that their relationship with God, or they had a relationship with God, I should say, because they were God's chosen people. And they felt that it not only made them superior to all of the Gentiles, but it gave them a guaranteed entrance into the kingdom of God. It's just like we really see in in the Gospels, if you study the Gospels. uh, This includes even the, the Jewish leaders. They believed that because they were physical descendants of Abraham, that they had spiritual benefits. It was the same thing in how they felt about uh, possessing the law as well as being circumcised. In the mind of the Jews, their heavenly future is now determined. But then along comes the Apostle Paul, and he's writing this letter, and he basically says, look it, you guys are God's chosen people, yes, Okay, you do have, you have received his, his holy law, you and you alone. Uh, you have been circumcised, and we know that you did it in obedience to God's command. But none of that is going to give you salvation. None of your Jewishness gives you eternal life. Are you blessed? Sure you are, Paul is saying. But you're not exempt from God's judgment. Matter of fact, you're going to be held more accountable because of all that God has given you. All these other nations don't have what you have. You'll be held more accountable than you think. Just to give you a little taste of Paul's reasoning, here in chapter 2, verse 27, this, this had to ruffle their feathers a little bit. He says, the one who is not circumcised physically, that would be a Gentile, and yet obeys the law, will condemn you, who, even though you have the written code, you have circumcision, are a lawbreaker. Interesting. He's saying the with all the pride they took in, in being circumcised, being God's chosen, having this covenant relationship, the uncircumcised Gentile who obeys the law, he says, is actually a rebuke to you Jews who don't obey the law, even though you are circumcised, okay? Circumcision is not a covering for sin. You don't just get that free ride, okay? Paul is saying it's actually possible here for the uncircumcised Gentile to be more pleasing to God than the circumcised Jews. And you've got to imagine what's going on in the face of these Jews. What? Because of what they were taught, what they believed, see? But here's the issue. Here's what the Jews were missing. Look at verses 28 and 29. He says, A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly. 
Now, I hope you remember that. He's not a Jew if he's only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew. You can say a real Jew or a true Jew, okay? Because he's, de- he's delineating between a Jew and a Jew here, right? A man is not a Jew. If, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is a circumcision of the heart. He says it's by the Spirit. It's not by the written code or not by the law, if you will, okay? And by the way, folks, just, just so you know, it's the same thing for those who profess to know Christ today. You can go to a worship service. You can, you can own a Bible. You can say, yeah, well, I, I've been baptized and everything. But like Paul says here in verse 28, those are outward things, okay? The question is, have you been born again? Have you a changed heart? Are you a new creation in Christ? Things that are external do not give you a relationship with God. It simply gives you religion. That's what really religion is. God says there must be a change on the inside. The law cannot do that. Only God can. Okay? And so with Paul there finishing up chapter 2, telling them, in a pretty strong way, that what they believe is a lie and it will not do them any good whatsoever when they stand before God. After they, in my opinion, picked their jaw up off the ground, they probably had a little bit of anger, probably some resentment, and definitely a few questions. Okay? Well, Paul felt he knew how they were going to respond to what he said. He, he knew how they were going to respond, and therefore what he does... He knows what kind of questions they would have. If they were sitting here face to face, he kind of knows what kind of questions they were going to throw at him. So what Paul does here in chapter 3 is he begins by throwing out the question he believes they're asking. And then he goes right back and he answers it. Okay? Now, we look at the first one last week, which is in chapter 3, verse 1, where the question is, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Now remember, folks, Paul just explained to them in chapter 2 that being God's chosen people, that possessing the law, that being physically circumcised was not going to give them a golden ticket to heaven. Okay? Well, this is kind of, you can understand, that's why they asked that question. So what's the benefit? Right? So kind of when Paul says these things, in the mind, therefore, of these Jews, you can kind of think in their mind, Paul just told them, you're not that special. I can see a Jew kind of thinking, did Paul just tell me that I'm not that special? Because the problem is they knew they were. They, they knew they were actually special in the eyes of God. Because Scripture tells all throughout, uh, it talks about the Jews' relationship with God. Matter of fact, it's, it's really everywhere. It's Old Testament and New Testament. Last week, I just mentioned three passages. You might have written, written them down then, but De- uh, Deuteronomy 10, verses 14 and 15, Deuteronomy 14, 2, and Psalm 135, verse 4. Okay, But listen, folks, Paul was not saying that they weren't special to God. He's not saying that. What he's saying is it's not going to provide them eternal salvation. See, they don't automatically come together. And that's what he's trying to get across. So what he did in verse 
2 here in chapter 3 is he answered the question that he brought up in verse 1. And he says here that there is actually much value in being a Jew. There, there is. Because they're, they're kind of thinking, well, he, I guess there isn't anything that I could take pride in. He says, no, really, there, there, there is. Now, generally speaking, all you need to do is go back and start reading the Old Testament. And as you probably know, it's everywhere. You see God's relationship, his love, his care uh, for the Jewish people. You'll see it all throughout the Old Testament. More specific, if you go back, and we're not going to do it now, but if you go back and read Romans chapter 9, verses 3 through 5, we did that last week, you're going to see a whole list of benefits there are to being Jewish. Okay, But the greatest advantage of being a Jew, Paul says right here in verse 2, and that is they had been entrusted with the very words of God. The very words of God Almighty were given to the Jews. And of course, you and I would consider that the Old Testament. What greater advantage when he asked the question, what advantage do we have? What greater advantage is there that God would give you and you alone? Nobody else, no other nation on earth had the Old Testament scriptures, had the law, had God's word. Only Israel. Well, that's kind of a great advantage, right? I mean, as you know, it talks about God himself. It talks about his character. It talks about his promises to, to Israel. It talks about the covenants that he has made with them. It speaks of the coming Messiah. It talks about the, the, the history in minute detail of their own people. Minute detail, things that happened throughout or from their descendants. So with that, plus the list here in chapter nine, there was a great advantage, he's saying, on being a Jew. More than every people group in the world. That's his he tells them, yeah, there is a great advantage, okay? Well, at this point this morning, in verse 3, Paul is going to bring up yet another question that he believes the Jews would ask after pondering what Paul has already said. So he says here, verse 3, well, what if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Now here, Paul uses the word apisteo. Um, uh, pisteo, or actually pistis, is the word for faith. The A negates the word, right? So it simply means for those who have no faith, for those who do not believe. You can use the word unbelief if you would like. And so the question is, will the unbelief of some Jews have any effect on how faithful God is. Because Paul's told them they've been unfaithful, right? And so they're going, well, wait a second. Well, how's that going to affect me, right? So what he's talking about here are all the promises that God has made to the Jews, right? They're going to say, is God going to be faithful to his promises that he's made to the Jews? And so he says here that because some, and I think Paul's being gracious, it's probably many, because many of the Jews did not believe God's promises, and as Paul has stated right here in chapter 2, they lived in sin. He said that they dishonored God. He even said there in chapter 2, verse 24, that they blasphemed the name of God to the Gentiles, right? 
And that's even after all of these benefits that had already taken place, including them having the word of God. They still did these things. They still lived this life of sin. Does that mean that God is going to pull back his promises to those Jews? Okay, well, you know darn well that some of these Jews that he's writing to here were thinking this. They're thinking, uh, in spite of my unbelief, in spite of my shortcomings, uh, can I still look forward to a heavenly future? <laughs> it's kind of going to be the question. Remember, remember, this is what they thought, right? They thought, hey, I'm still a descendant of Abraham, right? I have done all of these Jewish things. So how is my future looking? right? How's it looking? Is God going to keep his end of the bargain even though I have failed? That's kind of the question. So the issue goes back to God's faithfulness. Is God going to be faithful? And of course the answer is, well, yeah, right? And so therefore the question there that I just read from verse 3 that um, will he, if you will, um, pull back on his faithfulness? Paul answers in verse 4. So if you move forward to verse 4, he answers it by saying, not at all. Will God pull back on his unfaithfulness? Not at all. Now the NAS says, may it never be. The ESV says, by no means. John Zeisler states that none of our English translations are clear enough. He says it's one of the strongest negatives in the Greek language, okay? And therefore, it would actually mean something like not on your life, not in a thousand years. It's a very strong negative, and that is because it pertains to the faithfulness of God. You would never answer the question, is God faithful, by saying, I mean, I think so, right? You're talking about God's character, you would never, you would say, absolutely he is. You wouldn't even hesitate. And so this is what he's, he's doing here. He's saying it in the negative. He would never do that. That's kind of how he's phrasing this, okay? Now, that being said, is God faithful? Yes. It's important to know that not every Jew will receive those promises. Is God faithful? Without a doubt but not every Jew is going to receive those promises. Back up to what I just read a little bit ago in chapter 2. Notice the distinction that Paul made there? Verse 28 and 29, a man is not a Jew, so he's actually saying a Jewish person is not a Jew if he's only one outwardly. If all, if all you got is I'm a descendant of Abraham, yeah, don't really walk around calling yourself a Jew. But he says, no, a man is a Jew, a real Jew, a true Jew, which is what he's trying to make that distinction, if he's one inwardly. Circumcision is of the heart. It's not a physical thing. It's of the heart, you see. And so he makes that distinction here. Not every Jewish person is a true Jew and will receive those promises. Right? He just gave that distinction. Now turn over to chapter 9, Romans chapter 9. A little easier for you if you have a paper Bible. Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. He says, It's not as though God's word has failed. For, listen to this. For not all who are descendant from Israel are Israel. 
that sound familiar? He just got through saying, not every Jew is a Jew. Now he says, not all Israel is Israel. Nor, because they are his descendants, are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, he says, it is not the natural children who are God's children. But it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Did you catch that? As I stated this last week, when you think of Abraham, remember Hebrews 11, Abraham lived by what? Faith. Abraham, nowhere did it say, you know, Abraham stood there and said, because God chose me to come out of Ur, I'm guaranteed heaven. Don't find that anywhere. Abraham lived by faith. Faith. Four times in the Bible, this is quoted right here. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham didn't live by the law. The law wasn't there yet. Abraham didn't say I'm good to go because of A, B, or C. Abraham believed God and that credited him as righteousness. But then it says, understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. Believers, you believe you're a child of Abraham. Well, turn back to Romans 4. Back up to Romans chapter 4, verse 18. He says, against all hope, listen, Abraham in hope, what did he do? He believed and therefore became the father of many nations. Abraham believed and therefore became the father of many nations. I just read it in Galatians 3.16 earlier. Who were his offspring? Those who believed. Okay? Yes, God is going to be faithful to his promises, but just being Jewish doesn't automatically mean that you are a part of that. Okay? Just because you know you're Jewish, your parents were Hebrews and grew up in Israel, that that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't work that way. And you know this was kind of a shock to them, but this is why Paul is straightening this out. Remember, the church at, at Rome has never had any kind of apostolic teaching. So Paul is writing, he's never visited there. He was there in prison. Never visited there. So now he's kind of laying out some pretty heavy stuff to him. <laughs> what you believe, what you've held on to, what you stand for, it's not really true. Okay? But just being a Jew doesn't, doesn't mean you have any kind of spiritual inheritance. Now, in addition, it's important that we understand, folks, that God being faithful, which was kind of what this was about, that also pertains to consequences. Okay? God is going to be faithful to both sides. Okay? And that's important. Let me tell you what that means just in a second, but to quote William Hendrickson, he says, divine faithfulness is a priceless comfort to the faithful, right? God's faithfulness (laughs) makes us feel really good because we're his. An earnest warning to those in danger of becoming unfaithful, and listen, and a predictor of doom for those who continue in their unbelief. God's faithfulness is a predictor of doom 
for those who don't believe. Turn over uh, to 2 Timothy real quick. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 11 and 12. 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. Listen to what it says. He kind of gives two positive, two negatives. If we died with him, speaking of Christ from the previous verse, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Now, if we disown him, he will also disown us. In other words, you're basically an apostate. He will disown you. And then listen, if we are faithless, he's still going to remain faithful. He cannot disown himself. Okay? Folks, God, listen, God is faithful to those who believe as well as those who don't. Okay? God will never back out of his promises to save those who trust in him. Just like he will never go back on his word and condemn those who do not. Okay, are you with me on this? God's faithful, but it goes, the door swings both ways. He's going to be faithful to save you. He's going to be faithful to condemn you if you reject him. Okay, so back in chapter 3, Once again, Romans chapter 3, verse 4. Well, God remained faithful, Paul says, absolutely. Okay? But then he follows that by saying, it's kind of almost like one statement. Yes, and let God be true and every man a liar. Now, this is really just Paul reaffirming his absolutely. Not in a thousand years will he be unfaithful. That's really just an adding to that. He's basically saying if everyone out there is a liar, everyone, it won't affect God. God will still be true. If every person on this planet in their evil says God cannot be trusted, it still won't change the character of God. He's still faithful. He's still true. Okay? And if that wasn't enough of an affirmation, Paul now, still in the same verse, he quotes Psalm 51, 4. Okay? And so, remember, he's speaking to Jews at this point in this letter. And now Paul, what he does is he quotes the Old Testament to prove his point even further. And look, if you're going to be speaking to Jews, uh, go for it. Use the Old Testament, right? So he uses the Old Testament. And so here, what he does is he quotes King David and that's also another thing. King David was a hero to the Jews. So you want to get, reach the Jew? You want to get him to listen to you? Quote the Old Testament. And if anything even better, quote King David. Because their ears are going to go wide open. Yes, I'm ready to hear. So he decides to quote King David after his sin with Bathsheba. And if you remember, that the eventual confrontation with, uh, with uh, the prophet Nathan. Okay? So once confronted by Nathan, we remember David grieved over his sin. He held on to it for a little while, but once he was confronted, well, you know, you're that man, right? So David grieved over his sin. Now, I'm going to read the whole verse. You don't have the whole verse in Romans. I'm going to read the whole verse. David says, against you and you only, speaking to God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and are justified 
when you judge. You are going to be just in your judgment of what I have done. Okay. So considered here to be one of Israel's greats, after getting shamed in his sin, David here was ready to admit that God was right and he was wrong. So whatever God, he's saying, he's using this scripture to say basically whatever God was to do in his judgment, okay, David is saying it's going to be right. It's going to be the right, fair judgment. And listen, folks, you guys know it was a pretty hefty punishment that happened to David, right? What happened to his family, of course, the child who died and so forth. Um, But no matter what, even if it was against him, the king of Israel, David said, God is right, okay? In other words, he's, he's simply saying, no matter what God does, no matter what it is that he's going to punish me, um, it's going to be the right judgment. Even though I'm the king, it's going to be the right judgment, it's going to be fair, and it's going to be just, okay? As I said earlier, remember, is God faithful? Yes, to his promises. He is going to be faithful to his rewards, but he's also going to be faithful to his punishment or his condemnation, both sides. But he's using David to say, look, at God is going to be right no matter what he does. Because remember his audience, it's the Jews. Okay? Well, moving on, yet another question. Paul just goes from question to question. Another question here Paul feels that the Jews might be asking. He says in verse 5, Uh, But if our unrighteousness, this is as if the Jews were talking, but if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, well, then what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? And then he says, I'm using this as a human argument. I like the way the, the New Living phrases this. It says this, But some may say, Our sinfulness serves a good purpose, for it helps people see how righteous God is. Isn't it unfair then for him to punish us? I like how it it phrases that thought. So they're they're saying, okay, yeah, we've sinned. David's proven they've sinned all over chapter 2. You guys have issues. You've got a lot of stuff going on here. A big healthy list, actually, he is given there. And so they're thinking, well, hey, if our sin, doesn't it, doesn't it kind of make God look better? Doesn't our unrighteousness make his unrighteousness, or our unrighteousness make his righteousness more clear? I mean, come on, he really shouldn't punish us then, right? Now, real quick, the fact that Paul ends the verse with those words, I'm speaking in human terms. Some of you might have that in a, in a, in a parentheses or whatever. What he's saying there is, he's just simply suggesting, I'm coming to you with human logic here. Okay, it's a way, this is how man would think. Man would say, hey, that's not right. Okay, that's kind of what he's saying. He's not, he's just saying, this is how people are going to think. This is how you would think. Okay, that I could sin and I shouldn't really be punished for it because it's making God look good. Man would say, that's not right. In other words, it's like these Jews saying to Paul, Paul, on the basis of your doctrine, what you've already told us in this letter, our sin, our unrighteousness makes God's righteousness shine even more. I mean, shouldn't God be pleased with that? It kind of seems unfair 
that we're told that we're going to be punished. Right? It's like saying the sin should be ignored because it produced a good outcome. Or as you and I would say it today, what? The end justifies the means. Almost suggesting that, you know, God, maybe you should be a little lax on your covenant people here, huh? Yeah, we sinned. But doesn't it make you look good, though? It shows clearly how righteous you are. Odd question to ask, right? Now, even though God's righteousness stands uh, clearly when there's the backdrop of man's sin, right? Paul responds to his thinking here in verse 6. He says, certainly not. He, you remember the question? Is it, don't you think it's a little unjust to give us his wrath? Certainly not. And by the way, that's the same thing he said in verse 4. Remember I said it's a really strong negative? Same thing. Not on your life. That's what it really means. Okay? He says, if that were so, how could God judge the world? So God does not encourage, he's kind of saying, or condone sin in order to glorify himself. Okay? This, which is kind of what they're saying. They're asking this. Even though in comparison, as we know, God's glory shines next to sin. Listen to this. He doesn't need our sin to bring glory to himself, does he? The majesty of God was clear and it was present even before sin was ever there. It's never been anything less. God's glory has been the same for all eternity. It doesn't need sin to make it look better. Can you really get better? No. And therefore, Paul says, if God were unjust, then how could he be the one who judges the world? If I, if I, if I did what you wanted me to do, kind of like that, then, then how could God be the judge? The bottom line is, it is impossible for God to be unjust if he is to be the judge of the world. MacArthur says very plainly, God would have no basis for equitable, righteous, or pure judgment if he would condone your sin. How could he do that? He can't condone your sin and then judge righteously, judge within his own character. He, he, he couldn't do that. Abraham ultimately figured this out. In Genesis 18, you don't have to turn there. In Genesis 18, verse 25, you guys remember this? He's, he's speaking to God, dealing with Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember that? Sodom and Gomorrah is going to be burned to a crisp because of their, their homosexuality. It was everywhere. Every man, the whole city was terrible, right? Remember the questions? Hey, Lord, if there were this many righteous, would you still do that? Remember that? Well, if there were a little bit less, would you, if there were just five, remember he asked these questions? But it, he figured it out. Abraham figured it out, and he said, will not the judge of all the earth do right? He's saying there, you know, I should stop asking these questions because you are the judge of the earth. Whatever you're going to do is going to be just. It's going to be fair. doesn't matter what it is. It could be ugly on our behalf, and it was. It was ugly. But it was just, and it was fair. And Abraham said, I, I figured it out. See, because that's all God does. He doesn't judge unfairly. That's what I tell people today. Stop whining about this and that. You don't want fair 
Fair is we go to hell right now. That's fair. You don't want fair. You want mercy. Okay? So continuing this back and forth with the, the questions that are probably circulating in the mind of some of these Jews, Paul says in verse 7, similar, by the way, to his thought there in verse 5, but he says in verse 7, well, some might argue, if my falsehood, or if you will, my lies, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? So as I just said, there's a little reasoning there similar to what he said in verse 5. But also from chapter 6, verse 1, we know this one. Paul says, what should we say then? Shall that we continue in sin that grace may abound? Right? And by the way, he went ahead and gave the exact same response to what he did in verse 4 and verse 5, and that is absolutely not. Same way, the, the hardest negative every single time. Now, to me, folks, as, I, as I'm reading this, um, because it's supposed to be kind of how coming from the Jews, it's supposed to be Paul knows this is, here's what I taught, and here's how I know they're going to respond. Here's the questions I think they're going to give me. But it almost comes across as not so much about God, but their desire to live in sin, right? Their desire to live in sin and have no consequences, okay? Whether it be verse 5, whether it be here in verse 7, or whether it be in chapter 6, verse 1, it's the mindset that my sin, okay, here in verse 7 it was lying, right? He says, my sin does so much for God's character, judgment really should be out of the question. I've made God look better than he is through my life that I have lived. It kind of reminds you a little bit of, of Gnosticism, where they would say that they can just sin in the body, right? Or they can do that all they want because they're right with God in spirit. Or, if you will, antinomianism. Okay? Because of God's grace, the moral law is not binding on Christians. Therefore, I can live my life in Christ any which way I want. So it's almost like saying, look, I, I, my sin is not a bad thing. I mean, look at, look at what it does. Look at what it shows the world of how holy and righteous and God is in comparison. See? Finding a way to sin and in their minds benefit God I guess they kind of feel like it's some kind of a win-win, right? We get to live our own lives one way, and God shows up looking good. Hence the question, what's the question? Why am I to be condemned as a sinner? Because whenever I do these things, boy, it makes God look good. But you know what, folks? No matter what century it is, this is 2,000 years ago. Right? 2,000 years later, folks, no matter what century it is, people will always rationalize their sin. And that includes Christians. I guarantee all of us have done it at one time or another. We, we, we easily find it in others, but we've all done it. We rationalize our sin. Okay? And listen, I mean, look at these guys. These guys are smart. What could be better result? What could be a better result than, yeah, but it gives God glory? Huh? They went straight to the top. Well, you and I can justify sin and come up with something that sounds like, well, yeah, maybe. Yeah, but over here, no, 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 no. 
my sin gives glory to God. And who can argue with that? <laughs> what a great argument. Well, as Paul closes his thought here in verse 8, we can see he's really not a fan of their logic. <laughs> and you can understand why. So in verse 8, it says it uniquely, but I'll, I'll read it. Paul says, well, why not just say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, he says, why not say, well, then just let us do evil that good may result. So if you caught that, Paul's, he's saying here that there are people out there who are slanderously reporting, those people who are claiming that Paul is teaching that you can go ahead and sin as long as it's a good result. That's what he's saying. People are saying this, slanderously reporting against Paul. Well, this is what you're saying. That's why Paul says, well, why don't you just go ahead and say, let us do evil, that sin, that, that, that good may result. See? So Paul, folks, doesn't even respond to the nonsense of verse 7 or these accusations here because, like he said, these are being slanderously reported that I've said this stuff. He doesn't even respond to it. It's so preposterous that Paul would say something like that. You notice he doesn't even give an answer, right? He's given answers to everything else. He doesn't even give an answer. Instead, he doesn't even hesitate. And he says, the people who say these things about me, who say that I'm teaching this, what does he say at the very end? They deserve condemnation. Their condemnation is deserved. You say that stuff about me? You say that stuff about God and his word and falsify the truth? You deserve what you get. That was his answer, if you will. You see, folks, here's, here's what's been happening. Paul has taught throughout his letters of the New Testament, which I'm sure they've probably heard of some. This is their first interaction with the Apostle Paul. But Paul has taught throughout his letters that Christians are not under the law. Okay, we're not. And he's taught that we're not saved by the law. Okay, some of it he's done right here in chapter two, right? Dealing with circumcision and dealing with being a Jew. He's dealt with all this right here in chapter two. We went through it. Okay, we are saved by God's grace. We live by God's grace under the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, but people, especially Jewish groups, because they live by the law, Okay, they have twisted Paul's words to mean things like, well, we can commit sin because God, by freely pardoning us, can so glorify his own grace. In other words, we could just live in sin because when we do, God will forgive us and it's going to show how awesome and majestic his grace is, right? God has so much grace simply because we lived in sin. It's going to show that. It's going to show a great characteristic of God. It's like, it's like saying to show the world the abundance of God's grace, we must have sin. I'm here to do my part. I'm, just, I'm going to sin, and boy, look what it's going to do. Right? That's, that's kind of what they're saying that Paul is out there teaching. And so Paul is saying, you know what? You're going to get what you deserve. I've never taught that you should live in sin. Every time this comes up, I say, no, absolutely not. But there are people out there who are teaching this, and these are Jews, and obviously they're privy to it. And he's saying, no, 
don't even, don't even bring that to me. Okay? Folks, Paul, throughout the New Testament, and I have many of these verses written down because there are some people, I ran to a neighbor once who would ask me if, I'm un, if I live under the law. No, I don't live by the law. I'm not under the law. We had a, a lady leave Discover a couple years back because that was a, a statement. She believed as a Christian we're still under the law. I said, there are so many verses in the, New, in the New Testament that says we are not under the law. Paul, as a Jew, says, I am not under the law. It's very clear. But that being said, there are people out there still today who yet believe that, but there are people, like I mentioned here, who twist that. They'll say, yep, nope, the Bible says right here, right here, right here, right here, we're not under the law. But they too will do the same thing that these, these Jews would do and therefore just say, well, it allows me to sin. It's all good. See, I'm not under the law. There, there, you know, the law is there as a, a, a taskmaster, right? It says to show me I've sinned. But I'm not under that law, so it's not a big deal. When I commit adultery, there's nothing staring at me in the face that says don't commit adultery. I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. See? There's a lot of people who still teach this kind of stuff. It's okay to do this. It's okay to do that. And a lot of people flock to those. See? People who hold to the Bible like we do, we're legalistic. You're, you're in bondage to be, to be having to live like that. No, I'm just, I say we live our lives by the Spirit of God. Set aside the fact that we're not under the law. He says, no, the fact that we're not under the law, we can live freely. Well, okay, we have liberty in Christ, but we're not to keep going sin, as Paul said in, in chapter 6. Well, then, can I just continue to sin? What do you say? Absolutely not. By no means. So as we close out this section, Paul is obviously dealing with the fact that he has brought forth divine truth to these Jews, and he knows they're not going to like it. He knows some of you are going to shake their heads, some of you are going to argue with him, some of you are going to throw out a bunch of questions. And so Paul throws it back. Some of them are kind of dumb, but listen, the, the, the mindset for today is the same. People are always going to look for something that allows them to sin. Hey, I want to go to, I tell people this, if I want this church to be huge, I'll just call it the first pot-smoking church of, of Lynchburg. Seriously, you watch the people who will be here next week because people are going to go what they want. That's what they want. And there are a lot of teachers out there today who will teach. Brand name people, people you've heard about, you'll see their books as soon as you walk into a Christian bookstore, which is terrible, but they do that to make money. So my, my challenge to you is be careful um, as we, we learn what Paul is dealing with here, we still, with, we still deal with today. Okay? We honor God. We live by his Holy Spirit. We don't need the law. It tells us we're sinners. We already know that. That's why we came to faith in Christ. We needed forgiveness for that. Okay? But you are have people out there who say, it's, it's just fine if you live in sin. I've told this story before, but real simply, when I was back in college, those, a question came out, and the girl just said this, literally just like this, God will forgive me. It's that mindset. I wanted to smack her upside the head. That wouldn't have gone very well, so I chose not to. Okay? So, so I'm sitting here and I'm like, what? But it's an English class. It's not a, it's not a theology class. But, but I, I will always remember that. Ah, oh, God will forgive me. And sometimes we have that mindset. We're, we're, we're playing that game. Is God forgiving? Sure. 
will God forgive our next sin if we know him and he's forgiven? Yeah, he will. But that doesn't mean we, we hook on to this, I can do what I want. Hopefully you don't want to do that way. You want to honor God. If you want to live in sin, then you've got a problem, come and talk to me because there's a good chance you don't know Christ. But if you want to honor him, then you abide by his standards, his rules, but you're empowered by God's spirit, okay? So just keep that in mind as I look at the simple application of what happened then is still happening today. People will make up their own stories and use scripture to prove it. Look at we're not under the law, Darren. And they'll do it. God's forgiving. God is graceful. God is merciful. And keep going on and on. Honor God with your life, as he says throughout the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, um, that we can look in this text today, and, and it's just an interesting text and in how Paul writes it and, and, uh, and how he, he writes it as if he knows what these Jews are going to think. He taught them things that are going to challenge them. He taught them the truth about Christ. He taught them the truth about the law and about salvation. And so it's interesting, and, and, but Lord, it also brings things to mind of us as human beings. As Paul said, I speak in a human way. Our, our logic is, if in the end it makes God look good, then what's the problem? And Lord, we can sit here today as God-fearing people and somehow justify that. Some people can. Yep, it wasn't the greatest thing to do, but it made God look good, so I did it. As if somehow God needs our help to glorify himself. Lord, help us um, in our lives that we would overcome this because we all have been caught justifying things. We've all been caught saying, ah, I, I want to do what the world says. I want to do what my sinful nature is pushing me to. And it's okay because, uh, and we get into this thing. Lord, help us to be overcomers. Help us to have a heart that says, I, I don't want to sin. I don't want to live in sin. I don't want to have that attitude. I want to honor you. And Lord, that we would be sharp enough in your word to not allow somebody to dupe us to believe such a thing because many people, many false teachers will hold a Bible in their hand and tell us just the opposite. Give us wisdom through your word in Jesus' name, amen.